Hey everyone, welcome back to the channel. Super pumped you're joining us today. Today I have Dr. Graham Oppie. We're going to talk about theism and atheism, simplicity, uh, the nature of arguments, all kinds of fun stuff. So Dr. Oppie, thank you so much for joining me. How are you today? Oh, I'm feeling pretty good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm super pumped for this conversation. And just to give you the rundown of what's going to happen, we're going to just look at, um, especially like the nature of simplicity is that is like a theoretical virtue and how that applies to like the theism atheism debate, looking at different kind of like um, claims that may be put forward in this, trying to say like what theory uh, may be simpler. So before we get into it, Dr. Oppie, you just want to talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do. Okay, so I'm a professor of philosophy at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. For the last I don't know, more than 20 years, I've worked primarily in philosophy of religion. That is my, as well as my research, my teaching has been mostly in philosophy of religion. So I teach every year, I've taught a course on arguments about the existence of God, another course on kind of general philosophy of religion. And for a while, I also taught a course on comparative religion, sort of comparative philosophy of religion as well. Mm. That's super interesting. So we're going to be talking about like the best argument against God and like things related to this. So I'm curious, um, especially with like regards to like philosophy of religion and this kind of like topic of like simplicity. Um, what got you interested in like really thinking about like the God debate kind of like in this kind of um, like scope of things? So I feel like a lot of times like people like, especially like if you watch like a William Lane Craig debate, it's a lot of like just throwing out like arguments. Um, so what got you interested in thinking about in this, like your kind of approach to this topic? So I worked up to it slowly. I mean, I started, so when I, when I first was asked to teach philosophy of religion, it was as a casual back in 1990. So at ANU, they needed somebody to teach philosophy of religion. They asked me if I could do it. I said, sure. And then I gradually taught myself about the arguments. So I was sort of one week ahead of the students. So I just taught a course, um, 26 lectures on arguments about the existence of God. And so it was kind of piecemeal. And when I wrote the book on ontological arguments, which came a little bit after that, the approach was to find every single ontological argument that had ever been written and to think about what I wanted to say about each of them. And at the end, in that book, I kind of thought that there was this pattern to the criticism that emerged, but I was never really satisfied with what I said that kind of general criticism was. And I sort of, anyway, a decade later, I came back to write a book. I'd been writing stuff in journals about lots of arguments. So I wrote another book arguing about gods in which I tried to do the same thing that I'd done for ontological arguments, for arguments in general, though that wasn't really possible. I had to be a bit selective in the arguments I discussed. Um, and at the beginning of that book, I tried to say some things about kind of general methodological things about um, how to go about analysing arguments. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until maybe another four or five years after that that I started thinking about the kind of more general methodological issues more seriously and started trying to write stuff about how we should conduct ourselves when we have arguments about the existence of God. What's the kind of theory that we should be appealing to when we're working out um, which arguments are good? And gradually that's kind of morphed into this position where I think that, um, I mean, I always thought from the beginning that arguments were not very useful because they never worked, they never succeeded. But to the morph to the idea that really what matters is theory, not argument. And we should be talking more directly about that kind of theoretical virtues of the positions that theists and atheists might occupy rather than about whatever arguments they might have that they could give to one another. So when we're looking at questions like the existence of God, obviously like people have different kind of like ways of like approaching the topic. And you talk about having like coming from a more like almost like theory based approach. Um, so could you kind of kind of go into that? Like, um, like, how do you think about like finding like the best explanation in terms of like specifically like today talking about like the question of like, is there a God or not? So I guess what what I'm interested in is this think of people as having theories. Um, we call them worldviews, but um, the difference between a worldview and a theory is just that the, not all theories are worldviews, but I think all worldviews are theories. Um, so if, if you think 
of two people with different worldviews and you want to ask which one's better, the question that you're asking is who's got the better theory? Right? Mm. And now, and so then there's a question, how do you compare theories in order to decide when you've got two theories that are in competition with one another to decide which one's better? So that I think is the right framework for thinking about it. And I think um, it's important um, to say, probably to say somewhere near the beginning, that once you start thinking about things that way, it becomes obvious that arguments are kind of secondary because once you've got a theory, right, so you've, you've got a commitment to saying that this claim's true and that one's false and this one's true and that one's false across a wide range of claims, then assuming that you're good at working out which arguments are valid and which aren't, that is when conclusions are supported by premises and when they're not, um, your attitude about which arguments are sound is completely determined by your theory, right? And that's why mm -hmm. arguments are not really not that interesting, right? Theory is prior to argument and we should be interested in who's got the better theory. And then the stuff about argument just ceases to be interesting. So what do you think then um, maybe going into a little bit of the problems, um, like some people may like wonder, like, like, why should we prefer like maybe like your way of thinking about these things in terms of like arguments? Because some people may be like, well, um, like, especially like if you look at like philosophy origin, it's like there's certain like arguments that will be used to say, well, atheism can't explain things like um, like maybe like morality or fine tuning or like maybe in contrast, like theism can't explain things like evil or hiddenness. Um, so like, what do you think is like kind of like maybe not wrong, but like, why do you think people should prefer potentially like your approach to uh, thinking about these things primarily? Well, the thing that you were just describing, though, was, I mean, wasn't couched in terms of arguments. It was couched in terms of theories. You've got a theory that can't explain this data, right? That's a mm -hmm. black mark against your theory. Right, so we're going to take it that it's data that there's horrendous evil in the world, and you, Mr. Theus, you don't have an explanation for it in your theory. Right, mm -hmm. um, that doesn't necessarily mean that you've got the worst theory overall. Right, and the really interesting question is the overall question, not the pick some particular bit of data and see which theory is doing better. But it seems to me that the way that you were just talking fits exactly into the approach that I want to take. Yeah, that's super fun. So let's talk about then, like, um, obviously you come to the conclusion that when we're looking at theories and looking at, um, like, what might be, like, the best theory, uh, you, you come to the conclusion that, like, naturalism is the best view or, like, atheism, something like that. So when we're looking at, like, your approach to, like, um, arguments and thinking about, like, does God exist, um, why do you think naturalism wins um, in this kind of so, domain? Well, you've you got to be careful here about mm -hmm. whether I – do think it wins, right? Because yeah. uh, my considered view is that this that the um, adjudication of theories is a very complicated matter, and it's a matter for judgment. And reasonable people are permitted to arrive at different conclusions, given that they apply the method properly. It's kind of permissible to end up to be a theist, and it's permissible to end up to be a naturalist, right? Mm -hmm. It's permissible to end up with all sorts of other positions as well. So in that sense, I don't think that naturalism wins. On the other hand, when I do this judgment myself, I arrive at the view, unsurprisingly, given that I'm a naturalist, mm. my, my evaluation is that naturalism is more virtuous than theism. But that's obviously a contestable and contested position. And it's not like I'm thinking, here's a knockdown argument and, you know, theists can just pack up their tents and go home. It's not like that. Mm. Yeah, that's super good. And I wonder with, like, um, I think it's helpful because, like, thinking about these things, like, for example, like, we've, you talked a lot about, like, the Kalam. Like, I think about, like, your debate with, like, Andrew Loker or how you think about these things. Um, when you're looking at, like, your theory, how does that, like, change how you approach the argument? Because um, I remember, like, in that debate you had with Loki, um, a lot of the problem was, like, you were finally saying the universe began to exist from some sort of initial state, and there's just no cause. Um, and that seemed, like, to be the stalemate, and it seemed like it was just because of, like, potentially, like, your kind of, like, theory with regards to, like, naturalism and not needing to go, like, beyond that. Um, so if I'm making sense, could you kind of talk about that? Because I think um, that's super helpful at this point. Okay, so, I mean, one way to think about... Um, 
this part of the discussion about the Kalam is to think about what might be without explanation in mm -hmm. competing naturalist and theistic theories. And for this, what's relevant is what they're saying about whether there's an initial state of causal reality. And if there is one, kind of what's its modal status. So you might, by which I mean whether it's contingent or necessary. So you might think that there's a, there's a regress in causal reality, or you might think that there's an initial state that's just entirely contingent, the things that exist in it are contingent and um, all the properties that the things have are contingent. Or you might think that there's um, the state's contingent, but there's some things that exist in it, at least one that exists of necessity. Or you might think that the state's necessary, so there are things that exist in it of necessity and the kind of properties that things that exist in the state have are necessary as well. Now, um, it seemed to me, so I argued this first quite a long time ago, that when you're comparing theism and naturalism, you have exactly the same options here, whether you're a theist or a naturalist, you can make a version that fits any of those. Um, the one that I like the most, um, but I'm not, I'm not going to die in a ditch for it, is one that says that the initial state's necessary, um, so that what exists in it exists necessarily in the first state and has its properties of necessity in the first state. Now, since I don't know what the initial state of natural reality is, and those scientists know yet because we have no science that tells us, that leaves it leave certain questions unanswered, but it answers enough questions to make it clear that no cosmological argument is going to decide between naturalism and theism if the general things that I've just been saying are right. Hmm. So when I'm thinking about your view, like just like going to this idea of the initial state, like it seems like to me, like one of the reasons, like correct me where I'm wrong here is like when you prefer um, like naturalism is so in the, like the naturalist framework with we're looking at like, say like the Kalam, we have this initial state um, and the theist is kind of like, maybe like that's your, ne your necessary item. And the theist is going to add God um, who creates the initial state. Um, and we say like the theist would say God is necessary. The initial state is contingent. And you would just say like the, the initial state is necessary. Um, so like in that, like, thinking about this way, like um, naturalism may have this advantage because um, it just posits less because um, we both have something necessary, but the naturalist doesn't have to posit God in addition to uh, the initial state. Is that kind of, in a sense, like sketching it out? Yeah. So, so that's how I'm going to argue it in every case. Like if there's an infinite regress, um, mm -hmm. having God is extra. If the initial state's contingent, having God's extra. If the initial state's necessary, having God's extra. So there's no advantage here. I mean, sometimes I've said, you no, know, if there's any advantage here, it's actually to the naturalist because they're committed to less. But that's not a very significant consideration because this is kind of one data point and there's a thousand things that are relevant to the decision between naturalism and theism. But if I'm, if I'm right, if the argument that we're discussing works, then obviously insofar as there are cosmological arguments, the better ones are cosmological arguments for naturalism, not mm. cosmological arguments for theism, right? Mm. Yeah, that's super helpful. So what we're gonna do here in a moment is look at different, like different kind of points where the theist may try to say, or like maybe I'd be think this, um, where the theist may think they have an advantage in terms of like simplicity. So before we get into that, is there anything you, else you wanna say, Dr. Oppie, with regards to like um, why you personally are kind of convicted that, or not convicted, but you, you personally come to the conclusion that uh, naturalism is like the simpler theory before we get into these things? So um, it's probably important to talk about um, what makes for simplicity in a theory mm. and what's being, um, you know, exactly what considerations we should be taking into account. So imagine that you've got two theories and we have to imagine, so this is going to involve a certain amount of idealization. They're fully elaborated theories. So we're interested in the question whether God exists, everything that's relevant to the question whether God exists is in the theory, right? Every claim that's relevant is in the two theories. And uh, it's not just that I include the things that I judge are relevant, I include the things from the other theory that are judged to be relevant, my views about those things as well. So we've got quite a 
you know, two quite rich theories that we're comparing. Now, how do, one question is, so what's the overall idea here when we're comparing the theories? What are we comparing? And I say what we're looking at is a trade-off. So every theory makes this trade-off between minimising its commitments and maximising explanation. And we pick the theory that does that best. Um, what is it to do that best? Well, in general, that's kind of hard to say. It's a matter for judgment. That's part of the reason why this isn't going to lead to necessarily to definite results. I mean, there'll be special cases where it's clear, like if one theory is simpler and explains more, right, everything, right, then it's going to be the better theory. And that's often the case in science when we're comparing two theories that, for, I mean, so I think, for example, this is true when you compare um, Einstein's theory of gravitation with Newton's. Einstein's theory is simpler and it explains everything that Newton's theory does and more. So, of course, we think Einstein's theory is better. Okay, I said minimise commitments. What's in that? What's the simplicity part involved? So I think there are three things. One thing that you can look at, given that we've got theories, we can consider, at least in principle, we can consider axiomatizations of the theory. And then we can ask, so which has the simpler, which has the more compact axiomatization? And that's going mm -hmm. to be one dimension of the simplicity of a theory. Okay. Um, a second thing that we can look at is, so we're thinking of these theories as saying, okay, there's this stuff and that's all, right? That's all that's relevant to the thing that we're looking at. So mm -hmm. the question is, uh, the second question is about the ideas that you need, the primitive vocabulary in order to frame the theory. The fewer primitive undefined terms you've got in your theory, that makes it simpler. Uh, and then the third thing is the question about commitment to entities. Uh, is your, how many kinds of things and perhaps also how many things is your theory committed to? Commitment to more kinds of things makes your theory more complicated. Mm. Uh, and all three of those are parts of, are relevant to the simplicity of the theory. It might be that there's kind of some trade-off between them. It's not clear that the ideological, the one in the middle, ideological simplicity is entirely independent of the other two. But it's important to think about all of these things when you're thinking about simplicity. So the way that I'm thinking about simplicity is partly a measure of just the complexity of the formulation of the theory, partly a measure of how complicated the vocabulary is that you need to frame the theory and partly it's a question about sort of the complexity of what there has to be in order for the theory to be true what it's ontologically committed to mm. so these so three things yeah yeah mm -hmm. i'll stop yeah so these i'm just curious like these three things um dr oppie are these like things you developed or are these from like someone else that you're taking these from or is it like building off of other philosophers or yeah where do these come from so so I suspect that this is coming from philosophy of science, but I haven't been back to check the philosophy of science literature on theory comparison since I was a student. So I'm not claiming that this is original with me. I think that you'll find all of these factors um, appeal to quite a lot in the philosophy of science literature. There are problems with some of these. So one of the questions about the how to measure the um, compactness of an axiomatization is that it's not entirely obvious that that's kind of independent of the language in which you're mm. framing the theory and you might think that there's some sort of smart tricks that you can play um, that will make a theory that looks really complicated in one language turn out to be really simple in another language. I'm not very worried about that kind of objection, but it's certainly an objection that's out there. Mm. Yeah, that's super good. Um, so one last question before we get into these like different, um, maybe like counterpoints is, so when you're looking at like all three of these things, you have axiomatization, undefined terms and um, entity commitments. Do you think naturalism, like in your view, does it win in all three of the kind of these um, remarks uh, publicity? So I suspect that it wins against, every theory so not just a kind of standard 
um, realist theism, but against all competing theories. Um, the reason why I think that, um, I mean, it, it's easiest to deal with the kind of the realist case. So let's accept that there's such a thing as natural reality, right? Mm -hmm. So um, part of what your complete theory has to do is give an exhaustive account of natural reality, right? Your kind of theory of everything. And um, we're thinking about, I'm not, well, for now, we'll just restrict the, our attention to causal reality. I'll come back and talk later, perhaps, about how things like mathematics and value and things like that enter the story. Right. Now, um, if you're thinking about kind of axiomatizing a theory of natural reality, it's one way of thinking about it, let's suppose this initial state would be like this. There's, you have to say what's in the initial state, you have to say what the laws are, and everywhere where there's an indeterministic um, cause, you have to say what the outcome is. And once you've got that, you explain everything in natural mm. reality, right? So, so I mean, just um, we'll, we'll suppose that will do. Okay. Mm. Now, every theory is going to be committed to the, the initial data, the laws, and the, the outcomes of indeterministic causation, wherever they occur. All of that is going to have to be written into the theory somehow. The, it's obvious that the indeterministic stuff is going to be primitive on any theory. You just have to write it in by hand, right? If there was something that explained it, something earlier, then it wouldn't be indeterministic, right? So um, if you've got acts of libertarian free choice or you've got quantum events right that's all just going to be part of what's primitive in your theory mm -hmm. that's just it seems to me that's unavoidable so all that's left is the laws in the initial state on naturalism now if you're not a naturalist you add more things to this picture the question is going to be is there any way that you can add more stuff and compress either the laws or the initial data. And I don't think that that's going to be the case. I think that there's going to be, if, if the initial data is primitive for naturalism, in competing views, you're going to end up with um, just as many primitives to explain that data plus more. Mm -hmm. And um, likewise for the laws. So it seems to me that it's going to come out, right? This is, this is how I see it. It's going to come out that naturalism is going to be the best theory um, unless there's some other explanatory advantages that you get from the postulating the more stuff, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't look as though your theory can possibly be simpler than naturalism, which was the point that we were arguing about here. Mm -hmm. it, it just seems kind of obvious to me that naturalism would be simpler and all of the kind of interesting stuff now is about okay so what do you and don't you and explain do you and don't you explain and in what respects might there be things that are explained better by some mm -hmm. competing theory whatever it might be right i mean theism mm -hmm. is just one competition to, one competitor to naturalism mm -hmm. Yeah, that's super helpful. So what we're gonna do now is look at kind of like some different views that I've um, read about or heard about. Um, to kind of say like try to push towards like this idea that theism may be like a simpler view. Um, we would do a little bit of Q and A at the end. So if you have super chats, do those first or questions. Um, but so like the first thing we, I want to talk about is like idealism. So um, I know you've talked about like Kenny Pierce or Josh Rasmussen. Like um, some theists are going to claim that I, idealism can give theism like maybe like a simpler theory of things um, because potentially it can explain everything like within consciousness. Um, so you have potentially like if you're like say like a panpsychist or a dualist, but you're also a naturalist, you have this um, commitments to like mind independent matter, but also um, like some sort of like mental existing in some fundamental capacity. So the theist may say like we have this advantage um, where we don't have to deal with any of that like mind independent stuff. Um, so like a theistic idealism may be like the simplest view on offer. So how would you respond to that, that kind of challenge to your view, Dr. Oppie? Right. So um, when I, when I said explanation 
I didn't give you an account of what gets explained. So mm -hmm. if you've got two worldviews, competing worldviews, I'm going to take it that the data that needs to be explained is everything on which they agree. Right? Mm -hmm. um, so you don't get credit for, you know, if theist doesn't get credit for explaining the existence of angels, given that the naturalist doesn't think that there are any, right? So mm -hmm. that there being angels can't be part of the data. But I'm in in my original setup, and I said I'm we're for now assuming that we're realists about natural reality. Both the theist and the naturalist are going to agree that everything that happens in natural reality is part of the data to be explained. If we move to idealism, then it's not going to be the case, for example, that um, we're agreed that there are keys on my desk, right? I think there are keys on my desk. The idealist thinks that it seems that there are keys on my desk, right? It's something about appearances, something mental. That's what the data is. And for everything that previously was an item of data, about natural reality, there's going to be a new item, a seeming about um, natural reality, right? So, you know, it seems that there are trees. It seems that there's a tree in my backyard. It seems that there's elm leaf beetles on the leaves in the tree in my backyard and so on. And so we're going to have just as many data points to explain. And now the question's going to be, whether naturalist or theist has a better explanation of all of these data points. The naturalist explanation, by and large, is going to be that things are as they seem, right? So why does it seem, why does it seem to me that there are keys on the desk? Because there are, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a, there's a complicated story here about photons being scattered from the surface of the keys processing in my brain, which is my perceiving the keys right. and that's going to be the naturalist story what's the theist story going to be well here's one hypothesis um, here's one way the theist story might go what there is is god and a whole lot of we'll call them just call them minds okay and god is sending seemings to the minds right now that story is incomplete as it stands because we've got no explanation of the content of any particular seemings yet, why I'm seeing keys on the desk right now. What we have to add is a little model in the divine mind of the natural universe, a complete model, complete in every respect, right? Mm -hmm. So that if, according to me, there are keys on the desk, in the divine mind, there's a desk with keys on it. And that's what, it's that model that God's using in order to send the seemings to the minds. Now, if we think about the information content of these two theories, right? Um, the naturalist has got natural reality. The theist has got in the divine mind an idea of the universe with exactly mm -hmm. the same informational content. And then they've got more. They've got God, they've got the satellite minds, they've got the signals, at least signals going one way, but maybe you want signals coming back the other way as well, because otherwise there's actually no activity or anything like that in the picture. So the idealist picture is way more complicated than the naturalist picture, according mm. to me, way more complicated. I'm so curious then. So, so that's, so this is the, um, in, in Ty Goldschmidt's collection, oh, actually Kenny was, Kenny Pierce and Ty Goldschmidt were the editors of the Idealism mm -hmm. Collection. I was the token anti-idealist in that book and this is the argument that I ran there. Mm. I'm curious then, do you think like, um, so like some naturalists like Bernardo Castro, like they're also like idealists, obviously they're not theists. Um, do you think that they might have to suffer like similar problems with like, like a, a naturalistic version of idealism? So I'm going to be having a discussion with Castro in about a month's time, and I'll be clearer once we've had a discussion about what mm -hmm. he thinks. But sure, my my argument was an argument against idealism. It wasn't. It didn't have to be against theistic idealism. I think that if you don't have God in this picture, the things are a whole lot worse. Because mm. I mean, suppose suppose to take the extreme example that um, that that I think that there's just me and my sensations. 
then every single sensation is unexplained. Every one of them is just a brute happening and there's no explanation for its content at all. And so I end up with a horrible theory, one that um, has have a vast number of primitives. Right? So yeah, it's really a pretty good theory. Right, so but theistic idealists have an advantage over solipsists or even over, you know, other kinds of non idealistic mm -hmm. so sort of yeah. non-theistic non idealists according to mm -hmm. me because at least there you've got the potential to have some explanatory reduction you've got an explanation of a whole lot of stuff in terms of something else yeah that'll be a super good discussion um so the next point i want to talk about is like the, pro the like argument from arbitrary limits. So I know like Josh Rasmussen brings this up. I think Swinburne does something similar um, in some of his works, um, but it's not the same. Like Josh has really developed this. And this idea of um, theism is going to pose no arbitrary limits when we're looking at our necessary commits, or at least they want to like claim that. So if we have God um, who's limitless, um, potentially like we have this simpler theory than say like an initial state of naturalism where you maybe have like a certain amount of like foundational particles. Like why is there like, 48 particles versus like 47 or 49 or like if there's just like one thing like why not like two or three um so some theists may say like this is going to be an advantage for theism because we don't have to pose any of these like um unexplained limits whereas the naturalists uh, might have to do that so how would you respond to uh, that kind of objection dr Oppie? so if we go back to the picture about what you need to explain that kind of the initial data um, the laws and the outplaying of indeterminism, right? The, the outplaying of indeterminism uh, is something that you just have to write into your theory by hand because you have to see what the outcomes are in order to put them in. Uh, and you might think that in a, in a kind of relevant kind of sense, this is always arbitrary, right? I mean, because mm -hmm. it's, it's not determined. What happens mm -hmm. is just, you know, mm -hmm. you, you get a selection from a range of possibilities and you just get one and it's just completely arbitrary which one you get. Um, so I'm not, so I mean, straight off, I'm not sure what this kind of non-arbitrariness idea is supposed to be doing because the evaluation of the theory um, requires you to say what the primitives in the theory are and the outcomes of um, indeterministic events are going to be primitives in your theory, no matter what. Mm. But if you try to put in, no, this thing happens because God chose the world in so that that thing would happen, it's not indeterministic anymore. It's determined by God. But from a theistic point of view, you're going to worry about this now because you've removed freedom and, you know, various other kinds of things, right? So mm -hmm. I I think that the question about whether you've got this kind of starting entity that's got no arbitrary limits in it is just not a very interesting question when it comes to the question of choosing between the theories, right? It might be true that there are kind of arbitrary features of whatever sits in the naturalist's initial state, and it might be true that although we can argue about this, maybe we'll come back to it, that there are no arbitrary features of God. But that just doesn't decide which is the better theory, according mm -hmm. to me. Mm -hmm. right. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to um, just give you a little bit more on this, and then we'll get to this last point. So leave it to you here. So like when I like reflect on this point, I think about like the theistic picture, um, and like maybe we have this question of like, well, why would God create like this universe versus another one? And maybe it reduces to like um, maybe some sort of like indeterminate indeterministic explanation of like this is just the way it is um so maybe there could be like some not like a complete explanation but there'd be some explanation for like the supposed like arbitrary limits in this world whereas if like in a nationalistic picture there's some sort of like necessary like arbitrary limits well it seems like in that sense of like if the limit's just necessary like there isn't any further explanation um so like in right, that but sense, it's also like, not arbitrary right because it's necessary Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there's a distinction here between whether you've got an explanation and whether a value is put in by hand in your theory, like, you know, whether you can write it in a priori or whether you only get to it a posteriori. There's lots of necessary a posteriori in my theory. I'm assuming mm -hmm. that whatever's in the initial state 
you find out it's necessary, but only as a result of doing lots of science. So you find out what's in the initial state. Um, mm. But if you think that things are necessary, you've got an explanation for them. What's and that means they're not arbitrary. What's tr unless by arbitrary here we're meaning um, not known a priori, right? But I mm. assume that's not what um, the no arbitrary limits people are thinking, right? The mm. Right, so you see the, the, the way that I'm thinking about it, um, in the relevant sense, um, I'm not going to have any arbitrary limits in the initial state either. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, of course, this is a long way away from the Swinburne zero, one or infinity thought. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But there are difficulties with that thought. Um, one of them will be, suppose you give yourself the kind of zero, one, or infinity um, starting entity. Mm -hmm. And then we've got this initial state in which there are these kind of values that have to be put in by hand. How do you get from the zero, one, and infinity thing to those values? Why is the value of the fine, of the, um, what's it called? Uh, the fine structure constant, 137.1 or whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. If I just give you the zero, one or infinity characterization and say, derive the value of the fine structure constant from that, you can't do it, right? In order to explain it, you're gonna to have to have something like the zero, one infinity figure wants the value of the fine structure constant to be 137.1. But now we've got what looks like stuff that you have to put in by hand in your theory, right? You're not going to derive the value of the fine structure constant from assuming that God's omnipotent, omniscient and perfectly good. You just can't do it, right? Mm -hmm. So the explanation is just going to be incomplete, right? This is another part of the reason why I think that it really doesn't matter very much whether you have this kind of um, absence of arbitrary limits in the in the initial thing because you have to have real explanations and the real explanations as far as i can see are always going to appeal to things like there's this model and the models it's arbitrary or um there are these desires and the desires are arbitrary or whatever mm -hmm. yeah i appreciate that and we're going to leave that there for now because we have one more thing i want to get to I will forget to a little bit of Q&A. This is the idea of like, um, I didn't actually know this was an argument until the summer when I was reading like um, Josh and Felipe Leon's book. He's got the best explanation of things. Um, but Josh talks about in this book, like an argument from geometry. So um, this isn't exactly what Josh says, but I just put a little spin on it for you to kind of think about this. So say like um, in the naturalist picture of this thing, there's like these cubic particles that fundamentally exist. Or you could say like, maybe there's like some quantum particles that are just necessary and they have certain um, like characteristics, whether it's like a certain like particular shape or size or whatnot. Um, the theist might not have to make these commitments as necessary items. Um, they could say, well, God doesn't take any sort of like geometric shape or anything like that. Um, so there's no like brute geometry in our kind of like theory, um, which would make theism again simpler. So I'm, I'm guessing we may have a similar response as like the yeah, limits. Yeah, I do. I'm going to have the same mm -hmm. response, right? And supposing yeah. that there is this cubic particle, why did we get it? Right, not not because God's omnipotent, omniscient, perfectly good. That can't possibly explain it. Right, mm -hmm. there's got to be yeah. some more in the explanation. Right, and when we've the more, we'll have to actually just write in the cubicity of the particles. Like the mm -hmm. least, I can't, I can't conceive of an explanation. Seriously, that's mm -hmm. that's going to bridge the gap. So, so you're quite right. I'm going to say the same thing in that case. Too. Yeah. Thanks for that. Um, do you have any, before we get into Q and A, so we're going to do um, some super chats. There's a lot of super chats. So we'll get through those and some other questions if we have time. Is there anything else you want to say with regards to like looking at like these different points or like simplicity or anything before we get into some of the questions? Um, not really. I mean, you would have noticed from the, when I was talking about simplicity that there's quite a lot there that I still haven't fully resolved in my own mind. So I'm, I'm not, um, I think that there's lots more work to be done in this area 
Uh, and that's assuming that you agree with me that the right approach here is to think of worldviews as theories and then mm -hmm. kind of do the theory comparison approach. And not everyone's going to agree with that either, I don't think. Anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think at least for me personally, like I find myself agreeing with you a lot in terms of like um, like how to think about these like debates um, and these questions. And then it's the question for me is like, well, what makes the theory like the simplest theory? That's why like I wrote down your three things because I'm like, that's something for me I need to ponder a lot is like what makes a theory simple. So yeah, I appreciate that. Um, so we'll go to a little bit of Q and A here. So we have some super chats. We have a super chat from pseudonym, which says um, what's wrong with physicalism um, to make judgments against idealism or naturalism, um, new atheism against theism. When you say something is necessary versus anything um, necessary, otherwise to cancel um, or to null. So I'm trying to understand what they're saying here. Um, thank you for your super chat. So, you know, what's wrong with this? Um, so maybe this is asking more like what you think with regards to like the mind, like, are you like a physicalist or, I mean, I'm sure you're not an idealist, okay. obviously. So, um, okay. So it could also be asking about what's my view about physicalism. So, um, because I'm a naturalist and I'm at least neutral on the question about physicalism. So, um, I guess I think that there's no theoretical reduction of say, um, biology to physics. You can't take your biological theory, rewrite it in the language of physics. I just don't think that you can do that. And so um, my, I'm calling myself a naturalist rather than a physicalist because I want um, to allow for the possibility that um, you know the various sciences, including the social sciences, as well as all the physical sciences apart from physics, are autonomous from physics. Mm. Right, I just want to leave that open. So that's one thing. Another thing is what you said, that maybe um, the question is, what's my view about consciousness and the mind? Um, so I guess the person who's closest to me probably historically is Jack Smart and the sort of contemporary person would be Peter Godfrey Smith. I think that consciousness is largely a biological phenomenon. It has to do with um, our kind of synchrony between different parts of the brain. But my account of um, sort of mental vocabulary is all in terms of um, natural stuff. So I think that um, to, for example, that to believe something is to have certain kinds of neural processing going on and similarly for perceiving and being conscious and all the other mental stuff. That is for us um, when we're in whatever mental state it is, that's a matter of having certain neural processing going on where that processing is um, has an has a kind of um, uh, evolutionary history, and it's suitably related, embedded in the environment as well. Um, so that's the that's going to be the the basic story. So if you wanted to, you could think of me as a physicalist or a materialist. I would prefer to call myself a naturalist. Mm. Um, there's another, we have a few super chats from pseudonym, so we'll have a few of these, um, but it says, um, when science considers Newton and Einstein, what's the consideration of something beyond naturalism as far as space, time, and reality when God's a theory, um, deductive priori when considering science? So I think this is something like, um, you were talking like earlier, I think this came in earlier when you were talking about, um, like just the nature of like the value of simplicity. So like how like, um, Newton's theory got replaced by like, um, more modern theories in cosmology because yeah. of its simplicity. So like. Is that like a good analogy? Because if we get to like say like the foundational nature of reality, um, maybe like we're running into like maybe some like disanalogous um, territory here. So, so one thing that you might have been asking about is whether it's really true. I mean, everybody knows that the mathematics that's needed for Einstein's theory is ferociously hard, whereas the mathematics for Newton's theory is basically you learn it in high school. Mm -hmm. um, but the point that I wanted to make in connection with this is a point that Michael Friedman made in a book on space-time theories back in the 80s, which is that if you write out the Newtonian theory and the Einsteinian theory in the same mathematical framework, then it turns out that Einstein's theory is simpler than Newton's. And 
it also turns out that Newton's theory doesn't accurately predict um, data that Einstein's theory does. So that uh, in that particular case, you have one of these arguments from dominance. Einstein's theory is simpler and it explains more of the data. So of course it's the better theory. Um, on the question whether there's something um, uh, whether whether this is a good analogy, it's a good analogy for. I mean, it's a it's a good illustration of the way in which considerations about simplicity can justify theory choice. Mm -hmm. um, that's all I was trying to do with that example. Mm. That's super great. Um, we have a few more super chats to get through, but before we get to them, um, there's a really good like lighter question here because I feel like you've been super heavy for the past like 46 minutes um, from Jonah, which says, um, if you're taking questions, could you ask about areas of philosophy of religion and what the next generation of philosophers should work on? Okay. Hmm. So that's, <laughs> that's really a difficult question. I think that it will be good for philosophers of religion to spend a lot more time working on things like new religions and indigenous religions and I'm philosophy of religion should be philosophy of religion and uh, mm -hmm. there's lots of interesting questions uh, in those areas that just haven't been explored at all in or hardly at all right there's a tiny handful of people who've thought about those kinds of questions more generally, I think it would be great for philosophers of religion to import um, stuff from other areas of philosophy and from disciplines beyond philosophy into the work that they do. Um, we've tended to be focused on a very narrow set of issues that don't require us to know anything much about stuff that's going on outside of philosophy and that makes philosophy of religion different from other areas like these days if you do philosophy of physics you're very likely to have a phd in physics um, right? um, if you work on um, political philosophy you're probably going to have some kind of background in political science or other areas like that um, and so i would think that I'm thinking about what the next generation of philosophers of religion should look like. Uh, I would expect them to have a kind of wider range of expertise than my generation has had. Um, we have about five more questions, Dr. Oppie, that we'll probably get through if that's fine with you. I don't know what your time is. Oh, there's no problem. We've, it's, a, it's not even quarter two yet. So Okay. Yeah, I guess you've done something like conversations have gone like two or three hours, so probably not going to be that. Yeah, I... I struggle after about an hour and a half. Some of the conversations that I've done that have gone longer than that, I've felt they kind of deteriorated a lot towards the end. See, my secret plan here is I have all these questions I'm trying to bog you down with. And then about like 145, my secret list of yeah. questions where I'm going to try to destroy you. That's when they're coming. So just saying. So you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so we have another super chat from Pseudonym, which says, um, is theory ever reality? How about like dark matter energy? So maybe this is getting at like, um, like with like dark matter, dark energy, like there's all these different theories um, and then we don't really know what's going on. So how do we know like they actually like correspond to the actual world? Right. So, so, I mean, this, this takes us into really a whole different field, which is about how, to, what you should coordinate your beliefs to. So mm -hmm. if you think about the structure of your typical science, it will have a core, which is stuff where all of the experts agree, not only on the methods for studying things in this area, but what the answers are. So for example, um, engineers just rely on Newtonian mechanics in building bridges, things like that. And all the experts agree on what the right answers are. Okay, around that, there's an area where there's sort of contemporary debate, there's ongoing research, there are questions that we don't yet know the answers to, but we do think that we know the methods. So we, we're confident that if we go on doing the investigations of the kinds that we've been doing, so, you know, think about the Higgs boson, 
right? For years, people were pretty sure they knew how we would determine whether that part of the theory was right or not. And then eventually the Higgs boson was detected because we built a big enough particle accelerator to do it. Move out a bit beyond that and you get to an area where there's um, questions and we don't know how, what methods to use to try to resolve those questions. Um, we don't know what the answers are. At that point, our science is shading back into philosophy because I think of this as being what's characteristic of philosophy, that we just don't have agreement on methods or um, answers. And so with, I mean, to take a slightly different example, if you think about string theory, there's still debate amongst physicists about whether it's really physics at all. I mean, some people think that it's never going to be a testable theory and we really shouldn't think of it as physics, whereas other people think that it's kind of the future of physics. We're going to eventually have our unified theory of gravitation and the other forces through string theory. Right. So think about now you're not an expert. What should you coordinate your opinion to here? Well, on the bit where the experts agree about methods and answers, you should just coordinate your opinion to theirs. On the area where it's sort of currently in dispute, probably you should suspend judgment. And on the areas where it's still philosophy, I think you can just go for your life. You can just, you know, speculate. So that would be my answer to mm. that question. Yeah. Um, thank you for that. We have another super chat. So thank you again for another super chat. Um, what data is more reasonable, induction or deduction? Um, so I think that's pretty straightforward. Um, so in the, in this, well, I don't know, in the story that I told, uh, the data just turns out to be the stuff that's agreed on and it doesn't really matter how you get to it. Um, there's not much of a role for, um, what you might call deduction in my, the account that I gave, which was a sort of very idealized account. If, if I weren't idealizing so much, I could explain where a certain kind of deductive argument is important. So suppose that we're having a discussion and you've put up part of your theory. Um, and I say, that's interesting. From these things in your theory, this thing follows. And you say, I hadn't noticed that. Well, I've done a useful thing to you, right? I'm mm -hmm. a useful thing for you because I've alerted you to a consequence of your view. In particular, if you think this thing is absurd, like I say, you know, it's interestingly, it follows at zero equals one from your theory. Then I've done something even more useful because I've pointed out to you that you better revise your theory. You need to, to reconsider because you really don't want to be committed to the claim that zero equals one. Right. So, mm -hmm. um, so there's a role for argument and deduction in the, the kind of theory assessment as I see it, but only at the sort of developing the theory and checking whether it's consistent stage. Once you get down to the, um, the comparative stage, explaining you know, what data's explained, there it's not so much induction, but um, the, the data that we're taking into account is just, um, stuff on which probably not just we agree, but kind of everybody agrees. This sort of goes back to my, you know, if the scientists agree on methods and so on, and they say it, that better be part of your theory. But also there's lots of common sense stuff that will be in there as well. Mm. I don't know, is that enough to answer that one? I think that's good. Yes. I mean, I'm I think I'm kind of tracking with you and I, I like the theory based approach. I think it's super helpful um, looking at like these things like induction versus deduction. Um, so we have another question here. Um, if I die, is solipsism true? Um, and then a very easy question of what's ultimate reality. Um, so I guess, yeah. So I, don't know so I did give you, I did say that I gave you a reason for thinking that solipsism is a kind of terrible theory, right? It's about mm -hmm. as bad as a theory gets because you have, practically everything is unexplained in the yeah. theory. Um, you might think maybe the kind of point of the question is, why does it matter, right? Um, why does it matter that you should have a better theory worse, but rather than a worse one? 
And if mm. it really didn't matter, then you could be a solipsist. I think, though, that solipsism is unlivable. Nobody can really have that kind of approach. I mean, mm. you, you can't have friends if you're a solipsist. <laughs> I wonder, like, I was just thinking, like, I look like I have, like, these three-year-old nieces um, or two-year-old nieces, and there's this adorable video of them today, like, playing in this pile of leaves that I got sent. And I'm like, well, solipsism is true. Like, they're not really people. Like, they're just, like, these, like, random, like, um, flesh things that are just, like, throwing around leaves. Like, what's going on here? So, yeah, I agree with you. Um, another question here, um, do brute facts exist? What's wrong with the idealist here? Um, so, like, one, do you think, like, any theory is going to have maybe, like, some bruteness, I guess, maybe? And then, like... Um, yeah, we talked about like idealism. Yeah. yeah. So, so I've already really argued that there's lots of bruteness in every theory because, I mean, the only way that you can avoid the bruteness that comes along with indeterminism is to go the determinist route and mm -hmm. to insist that um, it's not just that the state transition is deterministic, but the initial state has to be necessary as well. And what you end up with is the kind of Leibniz view that there's just one possible world, right? Now, I think for other reasons, I think that we should not want to go there. I mean, if there's just one possible world, then connections between things just disappear, according to me, because the you know things like causation or dependence are modal notions that rely on a contrast with other possibilities. If there's only one possible world, they just disappear. So. I think that every decent view has brute facts in it. Every either the kind of initial data is brute, or the laws are brute, or or I should say, and or there's indeterminism going on. Yeah, um, we're going to do a couple more questions here. We have one from I have no idea. I don't speak Arabic, um, but it says, "Can you explain more about like the object objectivity without objects approach you take in ethics?" Okay, so so that's a good question. It's easier to do this with mathematics than it is with ethics. Um, mm -hmm. So there are lots of people who don't want to be Platonists, but still want to be able to say that it's true that two and two are four. And that's anyone who combines those two views has objectivity without objects, right? Because the, the anti-Platonism gets rid of the objects corresponding to two and four and so on. Whereas the it's true means the kind of objectivity. Now, I think that something similar to that is true for ethics. So I think that there are kind of necessary ethical truths, but there's nothing, there are no objects that make the ethical truths true. So for example, although, this isn't a perfect example. Um, I think that it's just necessarily true that it's wrong to torture infants for your own pleasure. Okay. Um, I don't think of that as a fundamental moral principle. I'm sure there's a more fundamental principle that you could derive it from, but I'm not sure what I, I mean, I don't have a view yet about what the fundamental moral principles are. So I can't give mm -hmm. you the derivation. Yeah. But that, that no, would be the view. That yeah, no, I think that's super helpful. Um, we have one more super chat from Pseudonym, which is, um, can all theists be wrong based on evidence? Quote. Um, so, I mean, you talked about in the beginning how, like, you, there's there's room for reasonable disagreement. Like, not all theists yeah. are irrational or things like that. Um, maybe, like, like what kind of – I don't know. I'm trying to think of this question. Right. So, so, yeah, I mean, so I think that what you just said is right. If by wrong here you you mean something more than just they've got false beliefs – then I'm not com committed at all to saying that, right? My position is that the, I mean, I've from way back I've been a permissivist about the range of, um, you know, rational opinion, and so I'm not committed. I'm definitely not committed to saying that idealists and um, theists and so on are irrational in their disagreement mm -hmm. with me. I just think that they're, that they're getting it wrong when they're weighing up um, this very complicated calculation. They're not arriving at the same result that I do. Mm. Yeah, that's super helpful. So I have one question for you, Dr. Oppie, and then we'll wrap up here. And I'm just curious, like, 
um, like in your mind, what would it take for you to like believe that God exists? A lot of times this comes into like the form of the like, well, like what if there was like some sort of like rift in the sky and like God gave you some sort of like revelation or things. But I'm thinking more in terms of like how you like approach arguments. Like is there maybe like would there be some like considerations that could come up with like simplicity um, that would push maybe like theism is preferred or would, like would it have to be like an explanatory power? Um, yeah. So I don't I don't think that I could be as specific as that, but I mean, obviously, if I think that it's rationally permissible to judge differently, it could happen that I came to judge differently, right? Mm -hmm. That would be, I mean, that would be a kind of short answer. The voice in the sky thing is kind of, it's, I mean, it's hard to know what yeah. you would think in that circumstance. I don't think, though, that you would necessarily go for theism as the answer. It's not clear Right, and you, you'd you want mm -hmm. to be in the circumstances, but the kind of speculating about that seems kind of profitless because it just seems mm -hmm. like, well, we kind of know that's not going to happen. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I don't know. I mean, so I think it's it's kind of fine to just say, I have no idea, right? Yeah. I don't see, I don't, but I don't, I'm not going to lose sleep over it because I'm not expecting that that will happen. There's nothing in our experience that should lead us to expect that something like that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that's super helpful. We do have one more super chat. Wow, I somehow missed it. Um, where Sudo says, um, if brute facts exist, is the best explanation as a naturalist if um, a priori exists as well as posterior experience? Is that important? Um, where does atheism fit? So maybe like looking at like the compatibility of like saying like brute facts with like um, like a naturalistic perspective. Right. So I think that where you get there's three places where you might think that you get um, brute stuff on the naturalist story. Um, there's the initial setup, right? Nothing. There's nothing to prior to it, so there's nothing that can explain it. Even if I say that it's necessary, right? Which is what I, which is my favourite hypothesis. Though I'm, it's unclear exactly how strongly I'm wedded to it, but if I say that. Um, it, there's still a sense in which there's something brute here. Sure, I can explain why these facts obtain. They obtain because they're necessary, but there's no explaining their necessity, right? And there may be kind of arbitrary features of them. There's the laws, the same thing. I want to say they're necessary. Uh, but most importantly, um, I think that probably quantum mechanics gives us a whole lot of indeterminism and every time you get an indeterministic quantum event, you've got a brute fact, right? Uh, mm -hmm. In the following sense, right? Suppose that there were two options. So the quantum choice is between A and B. So we're in this state, S, S can lead to A or S can lead to B. Suppose it actually leads to A and you ask, why did you get A rather than B from S? There's no explaining that. That's where the brute fact sits, right? Mm -hmm. Every time you have an indeterministic event. It's not that you can't explain why you got A rather than B, because here's why you got A. You already had S, and then the chances played out, so you got A, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So you can explain A, but you can't explain why S led to A rather than to B, right? That's mm -hmm. the thing. That, and so there are people who want to dispute that there are facts like that. So sometimes at least um, Alex Proust seems to argue that there just are no such facts. But that seems wrong to me. It seems to me that it's a fact that S led to A rather than to B and that um, that just means that you've got something here that's brute, right? S is leading to A rather than to B is just a brute fact. Hmm. So in your view then, like, would inter indeterministic explanation be better than like no explanation at all? Um, because it seems like to me, like in like a quantum, oh, that, absolutely. Like, yeah. So you've got a partial like explanation, right? It's not mm -hmm. that A just happened from nothing, right? Mm -hmm. The reason why you got A was because there was this previous state S and then there was this chance distribution over outcomes. You could get A or B. Let's suppose mm -hmm. it was 50-50 and you got A, right? So now we've got an explanation of why we got A. It's not, it's not, I just sort of popped into existence. Right? Mm -hmm. So it's a different kind of bruteness then, um, than like just yeah. like something with like no explanation at all. No, that's right. 
It's, it is mm -hmm. a different kind of bruteness, but it's still bruteness. There's stuff, there are facts here that have no explanation. Right? Okay. It's not that A has no explanation, but S is giving rise to A rather than B. That has no explanation. You just have to look mm -hmm. in the right place to find the explanatory incompleteness. Okay, that's super helpful. So we are at the end of today. So I want to thank Dr. Oppie so much for coming on today. It's been so much fun. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation. There's just so much great stuff here. Um, and unfortunately, we're not going to get to any more questions today because we're a little over time um, with the plan. Um, but yeah, Dr. Oppie, thank you so much for coming on today. I've just really enjoyed this conversation. It was a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me on. Yeah. And thank you to everyone who tuned in to BDS and Pseudonym and probably Skinny Man, everyone else. We're so grateful for you. Um, if you're new to the channel, I always encourage you to subscribe, leave a like and all that fun stuff. And if you enjoy, you can support us on Patreon.com slash Adherent Apologetics. We do have two new patrons to thank. So to Jeremy Hu and Linda Wallingford, um, thank you so much for coming to Patreon and joining the team. Really appreciate all of your support. Um, but one last time, thank you so much, Graham Oppie. Uh, really appreciate your time. And yeah, wish you the best. So yeah. And, and thank you, everyone. Goodbye.